How many of you have tried reading the Bible in a year? Maybe it was a New Year's resolution. You started in January and you said, you know, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And, and, and here's an experience that's common for, for many of us. We start that journey and we're in Genesis and we're reading about creation and the fall and about Noah. And we're like, okay, this is interesting. And you keep reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you think, wow, this is really neat stuff. You get into Exodus and you read about Moses and the ten plagues and the deliverance out of Egypt. And you think, man, this is so great. And then you get to Exodus 20. And everything slows down to a snail's pace. And God gives his people, Israel, meticulous instructions about the law and the tabernacle. Just picked one reference, Exodus 26. God, he says, make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. And on and on it goes. Now, I don't know this to be true, but I doubt that there's anybody in the room that would say, you know, this is my life verse. <laughs> just the, the, the goat hair just, just speaks to my heart. Or, or that any of us would say, you know, when I'm sad, I just go read Exodus 26, and I just feel so encouraged, Right? Exodus 20 to 34, let's be honest, it's a slog. Painstaking detail about the law, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system when we get to Leviticus. And many of us, we abandon our Bible reading plan at that point. And we just think, gosh, what am I doing here? What am, what am I getting out of this? What is Exodus 20 to 34 doing in our Bibles? Why is it there? Why is the ancient instruction manual for building the tabernacle, why is that in our scriptures today? I think Sally Lloyd-Jones captures the answer. She's the author of the children's storybook Bible. I used to read this with my kids, but she says this, that the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. Many of us, we approach the Bible as a book of rules, and maybe that's how you approach the Bible today, or that's how you grew up thinking about the Bible. It's a book of rules. Others of us, we approach the Bible as a book of heroes to emulate, although if you read closely, almost every character in the Bible is full of flaws, just like us. The Bible is most of all a story, and if it's a story then Exodus 20 to 34 and Leviticus, they make sense because it's part of the story and the story leads us to Jesus. Now, here's the question today. How does Exodus 20 to 34 lead us to Jesus? I mean, how in the world do we get from there to Christ? And maybe more importantly, what difference does it make for you today? In your life today, what difference does this ancient instruction manual about the law, the tabernacle, how does it impact your life today? If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, that's where we're going to begin our journey. One of my kids, not too long ago, asked me this question. So, Dad, is parenting hard? <laughs> and as far as I know, I wasn't giving off signals like groaning, this is so hard, you know, I, I hope. I, I think for, for him... 
He's an observant, thoughtful child. I think he just observed it. He just said, Dad, I'm curious, is parenting hard? And I said, buddy, it is the most amazing, incredible experience on the planet. And yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. And both are true. Parents, you know this, right? Parenting is really, really hard, but it is the best thing in the whole world. And it is for me, truly, best part of my life. And more than anything, the reason why parenting is so special for us is we love to be, we long to be with our kids. There's nothing else like it. When you read the pages of Scripture, it feels a lot like God is the same way. God creates the world. He takes these two humans, Adam and Eve, he puts them in the garden, and God lives with them. He dwells among them. God walks with them in the cool of the day. And then as we keep reading, tragically, sin enters into the world, and with sin, separation from God and exile from the garden. But God still wants to make a way to be with his people. And so God pursues his people in many different ways, but most notably through the rescue of his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. God delivers them through the Red Sea. He brings his people to Mount Sinai, and he makes a covenant with them. They will be his people, and he will be their God. And then the very next thing God does is give his people instructions for building the tabernacle. Why? So he can dwell with them. You see, deliverance from Egypt was never the end. It was a means to an end. And the end is that God would have fellowship with his people, that they would be together. The same is true for you and for me. God saving us is not the end. It's a means to an end because God longs to be with his people. This was the plan all along. And I want to pick up the story in Exodus 25. We read this, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And then God goes on to list the different materials. And he says all kinds of things. Verse 3, These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet, yarn, and fine linens, goat hair. There's the goat hair. And on and on. And God, God he, just, he gives them all of these things they need so that they can build this thing called the tabernacle. Now, it's very interesting that, that God does not snap his fingers and cause all of these materials to appear in the desert. God asks the people to give, to provide these materials out of what they own. This is mainly things they would have taken from Egypt with them. Now, Look at what God says. God does not say, I want every family to give a certain amount or to give a certain percentage of what they own. Look at what God says. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. What is God concerned with when it comes to giving? The heart. This is always what God is concerned with most when it comes to giving. It's not first and foremost about how much 
his people give. It's about the heart. And this is why, by the way, at, at GFC, we don't pass a plate during our worship service. And other churches do that, and that's their choice. But we've taken the view that your giving is primarily between you and God. Now, we want you to give to the ministry of Grace Fellowship Church because we believe in what God's doing. We want you to be a part of it. But the reason for all of us, and me included, the reason why, the main reason why we ought to be givers is because when we open our hands to God, we are simultaneously opening our hearts. There is something spiritually that we can't learn any other way than when we give through generosity. Now, I want you to think about Israel. How difficult of an ask was this? They're in the desert. They, they just came out of Egypt. They have no idea how God is going to provide. There's, nothing, there's not like a Walgreens on the corner. And God says at that moment, he says, I want every family to provide. What is God doing? What God is doing with Israel is he is seeking to build their faith. And this is what God is always seeking to do. If you're wondering today, what's God trying to do in my life? I'll tell you one thing. God is seeking to build your faith. And that's why in this moment, God says, I want you to give out of what you have. Giving, it uniquely tests us. Will we trust? Will Israel trust God to provide? And then after God gives them all the materials, the shopping list, what to get, God says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Again, this is the reason. This is the purpose, that I may dwell among them. The point of all the silver and gold and yarn and goat hair, it's this. It's that God would be with his people. And then God says, make this tabernacle, verse 9, and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, this is the first use of the word tabernacle in the Bible. It literally means dwelling place. God says, make this dwelling place that I can be with my people. Now, we're not going to go through all the chapters, all the meticulous detail surrounding the tabernacle, the furniture inside, but I want to pull out two things. This is so important for us when we think about this part of our Bibles, this part of Scripture. What does God's instructions to the nation of Israel about how to build the tabernacle, what do we need to get from that? Well, the first thing is that God deeply desires to be his people. God deeply desires to be with his people. Did you know there's almost twice as much content from God about the tabernacle and the priesthood as there is about the law? Why? Because God deeply desires to be with his people. Now, without going into detail, the tabernacle was essentially a tent. This is what it would have looked like from the outside. Now, it's different on the inside, but from the outside, this looked like many other tents that the Israelites would have seen, different nomads around. This is not unlike the tents that they themselves would dwell in. They would have thought about the tabernacle as God's tent among their tents. It was actually by God ordained that it would be in the middle of the camp, that that all Israel would be able to look and see the tabernacle and be reminded that they were God's people and that he was with them. And just, just for a moment, just think about this. The God who made the universe with a word 
condescended to dwell in a tent. Why? Because God deeply desires to be with his people. Do you see that here? And the second thing that we see, if you read this part of scripture about the tabernacle, is this, that God is utterly and indescribably holy. You see, the tabernacle, it conveys, yes, God wants to be with his people, but also God is holy. The the design of the tabernacle and everything inside, it was a visual lesson for Israel in the holiness of God. If broken and sinful people are, are going to be in relationship with God, there is a very specific way that they have to relate to God. Rewatched Lord of the Rings recently, and in the first movie, Boromir, he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. And there's a sense in which that is true of the presence. I'm not saying the presence of God is Mordor, okay? But there's a sense in which that is true of the presence of God. One does not simply walk into the presence of God. Now, there is a, a misleading idea around this that many of us adopt when we read our Bibles. And some of us, even growing up different church environments, we come to believe this idea that's misleading. And it's the idea that God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. And the reason why that's misleading is because it, it makes us picture God holding his nose and trying to back away from us, from his people in their sinful, dirty state. But the, the whole story of the Bible is God coming after his sinful, dirty people. He's not backing away. So a more biblical way of understanding it is not that God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. It's that sin cannot stand in the presence of God. And this is why God gives Israel the instructions for the tabernacle. It's not for God. It's for them Because if you waltz into the presence of God with your sin, bad things happen. We're going to see that today. So from the tabernacle, God longs to be with his people. God is utterly holy. And then after, God gives Moses the instructions about how to build the tabernacle. God gives instructions for who is to build it. Look at this next verse, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and all kinds of skills. Now, this is the the first person in the Bible that is said to be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. Filled with knowledge and understanding. Now, why is this guy filled with the Spirit? Is it to be a prophet? Is it to be a priest? Is it to be a king? Is it to do miracles? We keep reading, and he's filled with the Spirit to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. This man is not filled with the Spirit of God and and the people who work with him. They're not filled with the Spirit for any other purpose than to be carpenters, interior designers, and artists. And this phrase, by the way, 
being filled with the Spirit, being filled with knowledge. These are the same phrases used in the Old Testament to describe how God empowers people to do miracles, people to utter prophecy. So what's the point? What's significant about this? Listen, this right here, it tells us that God cares about all work and all work can bring glory to God. Some of us, we have this idea, and this came out of the Reformation, the Enlightenment. We have this dualistic thinking where some jobs are really important, and then there's other jobs that are not that important. But that is not the Bible's view. God cares about all work. I want you to think about this. When Jesus came into the world, he did not come as a priest. He's not a pastor. He, he didn't come as a general in the army or a philosopher, he came as a carpenter. Let none of us look down upon any kind of work. See, God cares about all work and all work can bring glory to him. If you and I, if we work with excellence and integrity, whatever your trade, whatever profession you find yourselves in, you can bring glory and honor to God. If you're a nurse, a teacher, if you work in manufacturing, if you're a janitor, if you're selling insurance, whatever you do. I love what Dorothy Sayers says. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to moral instruction and church attendance. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. God cares about all work, and all work can bring glory to him. And then the tabernacle, after it's finished, something amazing happens. I want you to look at Exodus 40, verse 33. Moses finished the work, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Once again, God was dwelling with his people. Scholars point out, it's fascinating, how in these chapters, the construction of the, of the tabernacle it parallels Genesis 1, God creating the world. Six different times in these chapters about the tabernacle, there's the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. Six times. The seventh use of that phrase is, the Lord said to Moses, you shall keep the Sabbath, which echoes back from the seventh day of creation. Just like Genesis 1, whenever the world was made, whenever the tabernacle was made, God came to dwell with his people. And just like Genesis... Tragically, sadly, the people of God lost the proximity of God. The people of God lost the intimacy they had. In Leviticus 10, we, we read about it. The sons of the high priest, they enter the most holy place to do what only the high priest was permitted to do. In the most holy place, the inner part of the tabernacle. And again, it's powerful how that parallels Genesis 3. The same thing happens. Two humans go and they redefine what's good in their own eyes. They try to usurp authority from God and they sin and as a result, they die. It is so tragic to read Leviticus 10 and miraculously, God does not give up on his people. God keeps trying to provide ways for the people to be close to him, but they continually fail. And eventually the tabernacle becomes the temple, but because of their sin, the temple is torn down and they're taken into exile. And in any other story, it would be over. 
I mean, if I'm God at this point, I might be thinking, you know what, I tried. I didn't just try once. I tried over and over, and it just didn't work out to be in a relationship with these people because they keep putting distance between me and them. But God does not do that. God does the unimaginable. And we read about it in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The gospel of Mark begins with an announcement about who Jesus is. The gospels of Matthew and Luke, they begin with the birth story. The gospel of John begins with the eternal purpose of God. Some of the loftiest ideas ever penned come out of John 1. And John, he goes back to the very beginning. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, when John says the word, he's referring to the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus, before he was Jesus, was in the beginning with God and was God. And then John goes on to describe the mystery of the incarnation, And he does this in a few ways, but I want to look at verse 14. This is perhaps the most clear statement John makes. The word, so Christ became flesh. And that word for flesh, it means physical, earthly, embodied. Christ became human in every way. But he doesn't stop there. He says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word for dwelling is the exact same word used in Greek to describe the tabernacle. For John's first audience, they knew that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, they would have immediately connected the dots. So what John is saying is that Jesus became flesh and he set up shop among us. You could say it this way, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, just think about this for a moment. When, when John wants to explain the mystery of the incarnation, he uses the tabernacle as the image, as the, the picture, the explanation. Why? And this is, this is so important for us to have a theology of this. Like the first tabernacle, Jesus is a place where heaven and earth meet. The divine and the human come together. Jesus is fully human, fully divine. Like the first tabernacle, Jesus is the place where the character of God is made manifest. Think about the first tabernacle. It revealed the character of God. There is no fuller, clearer revelation of God than Jesus. But the third reason that Jesus is like the tabernacle is the most important. Because like the first tabernacle, Jesus is the means by which God can dwell with and among his people. He is the meeting place of God and man. Think about the first tabernacle. That was the way that they could be close to God. Jesus in himself is the way. And he said it. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And not only is the tabernacle, by the way, about Jesus, and it is, all of the furniture inside the tabernacle is about Jesus as well. The, the door into the tabernacle points us to Jesus. He said, I'm the door. I'm the gate. The altar of burnt offering, if you go right in the tabernacle, that points us to Jesus, who was the lamb who took away the sins of the world. 
The, the, the laver inside the tabernacle points us to Jesus who provides living water for us. And on and on and on. Jesus is the bread of life, which the bread of presence points us to. The menorah, the candles that, that represented the presence of God, they point us to Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. But Jesus is not just like the tabernacle. Jesus is radically different in two ways. He is greater than the tabernacle. And this is where we need to lean in because a lot of what we're doing today is trying to get a theology of this. But I believe these two ways that Jesus is better than the tabernacle, these make all the difference for us today. How is Jesus, the true tabernacle, greater? Well, the first thing we see is that access is what differentiates Jesus from the first. How is Jesus greater access? You know, the former tabernacle was defined by boundaries. Because of sin, people only had access to the tabernacle in a very boundary way. I mean, think about this. One tribe could go in, the tribe of Levi, and one guy, the high priest, on one day a year could go into the inner part, the Holy of Holies. The greater tabernacle, Christ, is characterized by access. I mean, understand today the difference here that, that not one group of people, but all people from every tribe and tongue and nation have access to the presence of God through Christ. Just a few examples, and this is so staggering, especially in the first century for the Jews to realize this. But Jesus, he said it. He said, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow. In the book of Revelation, we read this. Jesus, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In the very first sermon ever preached after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Peter, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you getting the picture here? The, the, this is so different. The presence of God is not closed off to people. Over and over again, we read these words, anyone, everyone, whoever. What that means for, for us today is that it does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you've done God, through Christ, tabernacled among us, and everyone is invited. Do you know that today? That we have access to God himself in springs of living water. And the way that we connect with God is we simply open the door, as Revelation says. We trust. But the, the tabernacle of Christ is, is greater, not just in access, but in a second way I want to highlight. How is Jesus the true tabernacle, greater permanence. And see, the, the, the former tabernacle was temporary. Again, the, the people continually put distance between themselves and God. And that connection to God, it was severed. The tabernacle became the temple. The temple was destroyed. It was temporary. The greater tabernacle, Christ himself, is Permanent. You could say it this way. God through Christ tabernacled among us and Christ is here to stay. Listen, when we come to Christ by grace through faith, we are never separated from his presence. Did you know that 
the most common phrase in the New Testament used to describe Christians. It's not Christian. It's the phrase, in Christ. The phrase, in Christ, along with in him, they occur 180 times in the New Testament. It is the most fundamental thing about Christians. If you are a Christian today, the most fundamental thing about you is that you are in Christ. And and the New Testament could not be more clear. That once you are in Christ, the greater tabernacle, nothing can separate you. Nothing. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples a promise. He says, I am with you always. And Jesus says that promise to you and to me today. That though Jesus ascends, he is with us and he gives his spirit, the presence and the spirit of Jesus to be inside his people. And, and yes, I just take a minute and say, this is our hope for the future. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Yes, this is about salvation, but this is so much more than that. This is about right now. The presence of Jesus, the greater tabernacle, in your life makes a difference now. In Hebrews 13, as the author is closing that book, he says something very interesting. He says, keep yourselves from the love of money and be content with what you have, which is what such a great encouragement for us this time of year. Keep yourselves from the love of money, be content with what you have, but what's powerful is the why. Why? He says, because Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, the presence of Jesus who will never leave us and forsake us, that has implications now for money, for our contentment. Listen, if we get this, then we can have a poise and a peace like nothing else can give. And we embrace this. I got to go a couple months ago to Europe. I had never been, and I got to hike in the Alps, and it was just an incredible experience. And for me, listen, it was physically exhausting, probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but emotionally and spiritually, it was life-giving for me. And part of that was this last year has been so hard for me, and it's been hard for many of you, but I've really been discouraged at, at different times. And so I went on this trip, and I'm so thankful. And, and the seventh day that we were hiking, we were going up to the high point on the trail, the, the highest we would be the whole week. And at that point, my legs were dead, but my spirit was attentive. It's like my internal operating system had gotten quiet because there's only so much you can think about when you're out there. And in that moment, I, I, I asked the question, God, what do you want to say to me? And I started just asking, God, God, what do you want to say to me? And we were hiking on that day up to the high point of this trail. And as I was hiking towards the top, I, for whatever reason, I had Psalm 139 in my mind. And I, and I stuck on verse five. I, I'm, I'm just hiking in silence. I'm just kind of going through the, the passage. In verse five, David, he says, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. And I had this profound awareness in that moment as I was literally going up to the heavens in a sense. I had this awareness that God is here. God is here. And God was here way before I got here. 
the very next phrase in Psalm 139, David, he says, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now, he's talking about geography. If I go up to the heavens, if I go down to the depths. But in that moment, I felt like God was saying to me, if you make your bed in the depths emotionally, if you are struggling, and you have been this past year, I'm there. I felt like God was saying to me, Matt, you've been in the depths, and I've been there the whole time. And David goes on, and he says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And I just felt in that moment like God was saying to me, no matter what you experience, no matter where you go, I will always be with you. And I was just overwhelmed by the truth of that. And I share that with you to say, do you know that that's true of you today? Do you believe that? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's not talking about somebody else. By grace, through faith, we enter into this relationship with him and we are in Christ, we are in the greater tabernacle and nothing can change that. It's Christmas time, right? We, we all say, we, Emmanuel, God is with us. That statement is more true than you could ever know, than I could ever know. And you may be here today and you say, I don't feel like God is with me. And life can make us feel that way. But it's true that Jesus is with you. And why? Because he gave everything. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it means this, that we're reconciled to him forever. And that is explosive if we let that in, into our hearts now. Because if this is true, listen, for me, for you, if Jesus is always with us, then no matter what happens, you'll be okay. I'll be okay. You know, it's interesting, in Revelation 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. You keep reading, and we get to the end of the book, and in Revelation 21, we see where we're headed. This is where we're headed. And we read these words. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. There is coming a day where the invisible reality, it is real, but the invisible reality of the presence of Jesus in your life and my life, it will become visible. It will become the dominating reality of our whole lives. And we'll spend eternity in his presence. Now that word, dwell, that we read a moment ago, that is the Greek word skenao. Did you know that the only other use of that word outside of Revelation is where? It's John 1.14. Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. And one day, that tabernacle, that will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. See, the Bible ends exactly where it began. God dwelling with his people, that's his heart. This is what awaits us. Listen, if, if you asked God, is parenting hard, what do you think he would say? 
God, is parenting, is parenting your children in this world, is it hard? I imagine God would say, you have no idea. And it's the best thing in the world. And God would say, I gave everything to be near to people. That's his heart today. Let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks that Jesus is the greater tabernacle. And Lord, I pray you would help the reality of that to bear weight on our hearts today. Help us to know, God, we have access to Jesus, the presence of God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, your place in our lives, it doesn't change with shifting seasons. It doesn't change based on what we do and how well we perform. God, you are with us forever. God, help that to sink deep inside of us. Help us to know that no matter what happens, we're okay because you are with us. So Lord, now we just respond to Jesus. We respond to you as the great God who gave your son so that whosoever believes will have eternal life. Not on our own, but with you in your presence. God, we respond to you now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.